This will be a special interview. I am joined by an investor hedge fund manager who prefers to stay private. So we will only be referring to him uh, by his Twitter handle at Citrini7. Citrini, great to have you on. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your investing style? What kind of assets do you invest in and, and, and why? Great to be on, Jack. Um, the answer to my investing style is everything. And the answer to the kinds of assets that I invest in is everything. Uh, basically, I started this about five or six years ago. I sold my business and got, you know, I was instantly enamored with the market, right? I, I, my business was in a very, you could call it a bubble, right? Like a frothy sector. And I sold essentially at the top, right? It went public and, uh, I sold at the top essentially and uh, generally watched as, uh, you know, it was a 90% cash, 10% stock deal. And, but I watched as the stock basically, you know, tripled my net worth and then immediately cut it in half. <laughs> so I, uh, that's kind of like a life experience where you're like, what happened? Right. <laughs> and I started, uh, you know, getting more interested in managing money and basically developed a framework for investing that captures my fascination with markets, right? In every single market, it's, they're all interwoven. And I have basically the philosophy that originally it was just me managing my own money. And my philosophy was if I find a dollar selling for 50 cents, I'm going to pick it up. And then when, you know, COVID happened and, uh, I didn't take a drawdown during March 2020 and some of the people in my network uh, got kind of interested in me running money. So now, it, you know, it's very tight knit, just me and a couple people, but that's basically what I've been doing. And my framework is essentially use a cross asset uh, kind of approach to get hints about different markets, right? Well, obviously we know, you know, what's happening in the bond or treasury market is going to tell you, a little bit about what's happening in the equity market, but also internationally, right? Where is the money going? Where just uh, that's basically what I do. And uh, I don't think I'm very, uh, I'm not great at like talking about my process, but uh, I mean, you've seen some of the trades. A good example, I think, is uh, the Silicon Valley Bank thing, right? Like I am a generalist at heart and uh, I'm not a bank analyst. and But I think that also, uh, the way that I came into this wasn't through Wall Street. I don't necessarily have a financial background, but I was approaching it, you know, from I had a portfolio that was very, very uh, levered to the fact that we weren't going to have a recession. And I needed a position that was going to offset that kind of not recession exposure. So where do you look, right? <laughs> well, the banks. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I went through and that's how I ended up finding uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which I shorted you know, in August. I forgot that you shorted about that. Yeah, I should, I should say. So, you've had a. I thought that's why you were interviewing me. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I've done tons of bank interviews. I want. I want to talk about AI. You. You had a very hot hand uh, in AI stocks. I mean, you tweet tickers on stocks. You know, in February and March, and you know, some of them are up seventy percent. Some of them have more than doubled since then. We, we can talk about a few of them. So, I, I, even, I even forgot about the fact that you shorted um, Silicon <laughs> Silicon Valley Bank. So, your your cross asset class. You, you trade anything wherever you see an opportunity. Yeah, let, let's talk about AI. I mean, you have a lot of stocks absolutely popping off. The most conspicuous example is probably NVIDIA, which is up something like 180% this year. And that's causing people to say, yep, it's a bubble. This is a bubble. Uh, well, you should stay out. <laughs> why Why are they wrong? Citrini's image is, is blurred. So I'll describe what we're seeing. First of all, he's wearing a, a suit and tie. He looks very nice. He's got a guitar in the background. And then he <laughs> just picked up a book that was The Alchemy of Finance by George Soros. So that, that's why he's wrong. <laughs> Okay. Soros, everything he's written is a, like a great framework for how to view bubbles and bursts. He has that famous saying that uh, when I see a bubble forming, uh, I rush in and add fuel to the fire. And that's not irrational. You know, the, the it's interesting right now because there's this dynamic in the market that uh, is almost uh, like post-traumatic stress disorder or po like post-traumatic uh Asset inflation disorder growth was such a major, major theme for a decade, right? And now, growth stocks. Yeah, yeah exactly. Te technology, growth stocks, innovation. Then what happened is what happens in every bubble and they kind of deflated. And 
nobody can really watch an investment, you know, lose 70% of its value and not have a psychological impact. And I was also very bearish on technology for, you know, all of 2022. You know, inflation that had to raise rates and that was that. You know, sometimes it's as simple as that. But the thing is, now you have a genuinely promising uh, technology that, you know, AI and machine learning are not new. They're, they're, they've been around for quite some time. Uh, it's just that they have reached a tipping point. Things can exist for a very long time, and then they enter the public zeitgeist and the public consciousness, and uh, what occurs is they experience exponential growth, right? And the initial driver, right, is what I call like corporate FOMO. If your biggest competitor is implementing artificial intelligence and machine learning, deep learning, you're going to too. I'm sorry, I got I got one off at a tangent. The original question was uh, make the case for me. Okay, so right. So well, firstly, right, even if it is a bubble, it's a relatively new bubble, and uh, catching a bubble is the best possible financial decision. Being long in the beginning of a bubble is the best financial decision you can make in your entire life. Right, just because something—it's always amusing to me when if you get out in time. Say, yeah. Okay, uh, if you get out in time, I mean, if you pull up a chart of like Arc Innovation mm-hmm. or something, right? Uh, how long was if you caught the beginning of Arc's parabolic rise, right? How long was it going down for before it went below your cross basis? It happened pretty quick, I think. I, I think, think it's generally okay, the point you're making is right. In the case of Mark, which I'm pretty familiar with, it happened pretty mm-hmm. quick, like within a within a year, definitely. Well, yeah, okay, within a year, but I mean, uh, you know, we we're traders where we yeah. see what's it. Okay, so if you if you bought at the bottom, well, no one, you're not going to buy at the bottom. Let's say if you bought at in May 2020 at 62 bucks on Arc, mm-hmm. uh, it took m- March. 2022, two years. Um, and how long was it going down for? Uh, the peak was in 2021, mm-hmm. and then it faded out. But you know how trading is, and I mean, you're probably better at trading than uh, definitely me and the average person, and probably a lot of people listening. But like, you know how hard it. No, you know, you never. Sure, but yeah. the, but I mean, but the I lower, mean, the lower it goes, you're like, oh my god, it's it's cheaper, you know. So yes, I suppose you're right. You, you know, if you get out near the top, right? But at the same time, if the if you're talking about a bubble in, oh, that's a bubble, I don't want to invest in it. Really, what you should be saying is that's a bubble and it's about to pop, and, and I don't want to invest in it, right? Like, uh, and also, furthermore, uh, bubbles are probably the best well-researched phenomena in you know all of finance, and they have a set of criteria that comes along with them, and one of them is you know. Uh, IPOs, <laughs> syndicates, and uh, SPACs, for example, yep. right? And uh, pre-revenue companies that are valued at, you know, billions and billions of dollars, and, and literal companies that are piles of, you know, uh, $700 million that are trading on the stock exchange for $1.4 billion. You know, <laughs> that's, uh, there were SPACs, right? That were trading at 100%. Yeah. I mean, that's about- and, and everyone is talking about how they got to buy GameStop, huge retail. You know, everyone wants to talk to you yeah. about stocks and the next hot thing. We're, we're not there yet. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. And that's why I think, you know, I have a feeling my own suspicion is that, yeah, these stocks could continue to go higher. And I don't know enough about the fundamentals, but that's just kind of my observation. So I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. I just, you know, for the for the sake of argument, I want to play the role of a skeptic because I know there are right. a lot of skeptics out there. There, there are a lot so, of skeptics. So, so Citrini, so this whole chat GBT, it gets popular. You know, everyone who was, uh, you know, into crypto in 2021, suddenly they're a, you know, AI g- genius expert and they're all talking about this. Okay, well, how does this actually change the game? So like NVIDIA skyrockets, how does that, what is going to be different? What is different in this new world where artificial intelligence has reached, as you say, a tipping point that is different from 2018? Why should these stocks be trading at 70 times earnings instead of 20 times earnings? You know, let, let me, so your question, what what is different in two years time or three years time because of artificial intelligence or machine learning? I don't know. I have no clue. 
all that I know is that artificial intelligence and machine learning exist. They are, you know, uh, accelerated computing and parallel computing is a new paradigm in computing. And just by the fact that it exists, it's, it's growing at, you know, 2000% year over year if you annualize it. Nothing, uh, this is a quote directly from, you know, Jeff Bezos. Nothing grows at 2000% year over year and does. So what is, what is growing at 2000%? The, 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 if you look at OpenAI's numbers, like like uh, the week over week, if you annualize, oh, it. oh, users of ChatGPT, yeah, right, and uh, users and developers, right. But so here's the thing, I'm not smart enough to know what the world looks like in two years. You know, I don't know where this technology is going to be uh, most beneficial. I don't know where it's going to be most harmful. All I know is that it exists and the nature of it existing inherent to artificial intelligence and machine learning is the fact that it takes an intense amount of uh, computing power, right? It, it's, it's a new paradigm in computing in that, you know, if you have a CPU or you have a CPU, so a CPU can do a lot of tasks, but not side by side. Right. It can it can make a ton of calculations, very complex, but it's it only it's limited by the number of threads it has, the number of processes, whereas a GPU. Right. Uh, can that's what a uh, you might have heard the term like a teraflop or exaflop, F-L-O-P, uh, floating point operations. Right. It's basically like calculating. And this is why it was, you know, used in uh, cryptocurrency. But uh a lot of the cryptocurrency miners, they're specifically for cryptocurrency. Regardless, what just by the nature of this existing means the data centers are going to have to change and grow exponentially to accommodate its use, right? That is what I'm focusing on. Or, you know, the, the thing that brought me to this was not, I wasn't like search, search, seeking out for a new type of innovative technology. I, uh, was pretty pessimistic about you know innovation after you know well the, obviously the Fed funds rate is at five percent and uh, you know we might be going into a recession we might not be uh, but the thing is I still am in the business of you know finding things that are trading cheaper than what their true value is and uh, I bought a company called Supermicro and uh, Supermicro Computer and uh, it had had. Uh, it was very contrarian at the time that I bought it. It had some accounting irregularities, uh, which is, you know, like the touch of death in, in the stock market, right? And it was, I think it was trading at two or three times its free cash flow. It was, a, it was very, very, very cheap. And then, you know, I, I held it. I, the position was probably up, I don't know, 100% or so. And that's when ChatGPT came out. When I saw it, I was like, this is kind of a big deal. So I was going through my portfolio to kind of see, you know, and that, that kind of got me to learn a little bit more about this. And the fact that, you know, uh, it is a beneficiary because data center, you know, we're not going to completely get rid of CPU computing. We're just going to, you know, we need more GPU servers and GPU, you know, Supermicro makes those servers. So. It, that kind of got me thinking about what is the best risk reward in this entire space and the best risk reward. Obviously, the reward, if you right now can predict who is going to be the biggest beneficiary of the AI machine learning, deep learning as a technology, uh, I, I think that's amazing. And, you know, your rewards are going to be absolutely insane, like, you know, buying Apple right before they release the iPhone went parabolic or, you know, uh, buying Microsoft before they released Windows and we're buying Google before they won the search wars. I mean, what, but the thing is, I, I'm not advanced enough to know what that is. So, so the best risk reward for me is to say, who are going to be the people that build the rails that this technology goes along? And it's the data centers. And that's, you know, I wrote a piece recently uh, that I sent to you about uh, trying to find out who the biggest beneficiaries of this are. And I lay out, you know, kind of a framework, uh, basically uh, three phases, right? And not, they're, it's not linear. These phases aren't going to happen one after the other. The first phase is obviously like a data center hyperscale, right? The data centers have, are the bottleneck in this situation. They have to, uh, if every single company, developer, startup that decides they want to use artificial intelligence or machine learning, 
uh, that's more computing power that's necessary. So that needs to scale first. That's, that's the, uh, gate. And uh, that I think represents the best place to be. In phase two, there's going to be the implementation. Now, do I want to be long the names that are implementing AI? Palantir is, is one of them. That's up huge. That would have been nice to be long, but I, I don't know if in two years it's going to look the same way it does. I don't know if they're still, you know, if they're going to be a winner or a loser. You know, there's a, I, there are vague threats to software companies. So uh, instead, you look at companies like, uh, you know, Google or Adobe or the, the, the companies that are going to take AI and put it in the hands of people. Finally, you get to, you know, phase three where people will specialize and integrate it and it will see increasingly specific use cases. And there are some specific use cases now, like, uh, the, company Schrodinger or Absolera, they are using artificial intelligence to uh, for drug discovery, right? Deducing structure activity relationships in new chemicals. And that's kind of, I mean, first off, that's amazing. Any biotech investor that's listening to this, like, you know how much R&D, how much spending is done just finding the molecules, just finding the structure that's going to work. And imagine that process is streamlined and you know that I think can here's the thing I don't the way that I'm playing this I think a good way to describe this is like a optimism barbell right like I like I have my concerns on the macro situation right now and I think that there are very valid concerns uh also there are you know potential Risks that the market isn't pricing it at all. What if inflation reaccelerates? The economy, you know, is, is uh, housing, for example, price, you know, prices are starting to tick back up again, and that is not necessarily what the Fed wants to see. And so there are a lot of macro risks right now, but I think that it actually just contributes to this opportunity because I, I can have on positions that might maybe not benefit or the recession resilient or they're, you know, I can, I can ex- express that pessimistic view, but at the same time, I can, you know, since this is potentially a mega trend, right? I can w- weight the, the barbell with optim, an optimistic view of technology. And uh, it, it's been working, right? Like uh, my, I, I had some pessimistic, actually uh, both of sides of, or both of, the barbell and the weights are working right now. But the I think that right now, basically, a lot of investors are, they're just afraid to see something new and shiny and go for it, right? Because it's failed so many times. You know, 5G, Internet of Things wasn't, wasn't that promising. Uh, blockchain, uh, cannabis, like there are these phases, right? And, but, eventually a phase comes along and it's not a phase. The dot-com bubble was a bubble, right? But the internet didn't go away. And uh, if you if you were buying early, I mean, it doesn't really matter if you bought, you know, Apple at the top of the, or, uh, top of the dot-com bubble at the bottom, you know, or uh, Microsoft. It doesn't really... It, 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 so I think that... Uh, if you held forever, which is something people very rarely do. Right. And it's That's something true. you're... Yeah. And you yourself are a, a, something of a short-term trader. Absolutely, yeah. The feeling that I get that Long only funds or like long money is very, very underweight technology. And it seems like, you know, that has been changing, but it's, it's kind of like gradual, right? Like, like, like a capitulation, almost like a short squeeze. Like the long only side is getting short squeezed because every single day you're making a decision whether if you're holding on to something, you're making a decision to buy it. If you're not buying something, you're essentially making a decision to sell it. You, 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 you don't think that it's going to outperform the things that you're in. So you have these, you know, long only managers who were, if they were successful, wrote a massive trend in technology for almost a decade. And now the same things that were so successful are working so soon after they have changed their portfolio to be more aware of valuations and, you know, the macro environment. And that's painful, right? But the thing is, when you have a short position on, the position can go against you 
only so long before you know you blow up and no longer exist. But if you are long only and underperforming, that can go on for very much longer time before you capitulate. So it's kind of like a rolling short squeeze. It's squeeze. It's, it's not a short squeeze because they're not short, but it's a squeeze. Well, it's not, but right, but it, it's the same dynamic, right? In yes. in that they are getting squeezed because they, uh, a long only uh, allocator is going to basically there is a decision to make when you are holding certain things, right? And when you decide to hold those things instead of other things you're basically short those other things, especially if they're continually going up and you're not participating. Right. So people may be confused when we say that long only are um, uh, underweight technology. So first of all, let's say the entire market is not overweight or underweight everything. Everyone is adequately weighted to everything in, in, in general. You know, when you say long only, I think you mean active managers who want to differentiate themselves from the index. And, you know, you've heard the pitch before and it sounds convincing and there are you know good arguments for it, but the, the data for active equity management is, you know, not super strong. Um, you know, most active equity managers under, underperform the index and they do so by saying, Oh, Apple's 7% of the S and P Microsoft's 5%. I'm not going to own those. I'm going to own, uh, you know, this pottery, uh, pottery company. I'm going to own this, Auto lender, this you know, stocks that are you know, no one's really ever heard of, and because they're so smart, those stocks are supposed to go up more than Apple, right? Well, it doesn't happen. Apple goes up more, <laughs> and this this year, that's, that's exactly what has happened. Uh, I mean, it's, I think it's been quite historic. Um, the just the, the narrowness of this rally has been in all the stocks that are underweight <laughs> from the active uh, active managers. It's really insane because uh, you remember like end of the year, the year ahead forecasts and like the entire sell side is like, this is the stock pickers market. This is the year of active management. And then it's like, no, immediately wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and it was basically, it was an extreme in sentiment in that I'm uh, you, the way that Apple was like trading at the end, it, it, I'm not saying it was super cheap or whatever, but the way it was trading was just hated, you know, like, uh, like obviously some of it probably had to do with tax loss harvesting, but it, it just Google, I, Apple for sure, but Google Salesforce and then Facebook met, I mean, Meta was trading at a PE ratio of something like nine, you know, right. whereas there, there are chicken wing companies that have a, you know, PE of like 80. So it's kind of, it's kind of ridiculous. Exactly. Chipotle has a PE of 50 or something. You know, I don't want to be the Pied Piper here and, and uh, say that I'm certain that AI is going to be, it's going to change the entire world. And it's, I'm not a fanatic about this, but what I am is a trader and I don't ignore a trend when it's staring me right in the face. I'm not going to fight something that had, like, if you do, it's a simple analysis, right? Like, is is there a potential for this to be another dot-com bubble? You know, is there a potential for this potentially game-changing technology to cause a significant amount of growth in a specific sector? Yes, right? And and we've seen how that looks before. You can look at, you know, 1994 to 1999 because... Uh, you know, people refer to the dot-com bubble, but really it was, you know, the personal computing revolution started in, you know, the mid-90s and it ground up. It just went, up, right, at the very end it goes parabolic. And that's probably when you say, eh, you know, maybe yeah. back off, right? But and it started with companies that had good unit economics that were either yeah. profitable or they were, uh, to the extent that they were unprofitable, it was because they were, they could be profitable, but they just wanted to grow and focus on growing. And, you know, Microsoft, like, exactly. was a high-quality company. Exactly. Um, it got... Like, Traded yeah. very richly, yeah. And then, and then you had the real uh, BS stocks. You know, Pet.com is the classic example of you know basically no revenue. And I don't know if Pet, you know, it, were, it was trading off eyeballs. Eventually, it gets ridiculous. And it, and we were there in you know late 2021 for a mm -hmm. lot of uh, technology stocks and and SPACs. Excuse me, I'm not a technology guy. I'm a finance guy. I'm a podcaster, and I'm also you know not a biotech guy at all. So these things are way over my head. And this type of thing, like you know, even though I'm I analyze macro, I always try and look at individual companies and, you know, normally most companies are not that hard to understand the basic business model. Obviously so many complexities within, but it's like, oh, we, you know, we get money from depositors at 1%. We lend it out at 4%, make that spread. We pay our employees. Boom, boom. We go home. Oh, we're a shipbuilder. We, you know, we, we buy you know, steel and we you know, put it in the ships. We sell the ship. Like it's, you know, uh, Chipotle, all these types of things. But when I look at the investor decks for all these companies, and I think most of this has to do with my novice uh, as a as a technology person like it 
I really don't understand what all these companies are doing. I'll be honest. I sympathize with that yeah. because uh, I don't I don't understand a lot. I'm not super well versed in technology either, and uh, I felt that way. I really felt that way when it came to like uh, you know in 2021 with the like software as a service companies. Right? I did not understand what these companies did. What would like, be example I, of, is a uh, snowflake be an example of that? Sure, Upstart, right? Like, why why would Upstart be worth so much, you know, more than the, the traditional alternatives? Or, or I just Monday.com, right? Yeah, Monday.com, right? It's like, and I'm not saying that I respect the analysts that like understand, understood that like that what was happening there. I didn't at all. But like when it comes to semiconductors and when it comes to you know the data center and it's uh, it's not, I don't view it the same way, you know, like with, with Supermicro, for example, that they're, they are basically manufacturing boxes, assembling boxes so that other companies that need to put things in these boxes can, you know, uh, <laughs> they're a box seller. They, yeah, they make the server. They make the, 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 the thing that the GPUs go into, that's what Supermicro does. And it, so they, it's, make the chips, they just make the box, huh? You know, the unit economics are straightforward. There's a physical thing you can touch. You know, it's not, uh, it's not the software I have a difficult time with, but I, this, I think it's, uh, a little different. And also to something you said earlier, you know, the dot com bubble, there were companies that came out that just, what do you even do? What, you know, you, you have no revenue. You're not even really a company. Like, can you name anything that's happened in regards to like chat GPT came out in, uh, at the end of last year? Yeah. It's been almost six months now. Like, is, you know, I don't see anything that's, that makes me think, oh God, you know, the hype is insane. It's, you know? Yes, I agree with you. And I'll give you an example from the, a, a SPAC that I followed pretty closely. It was a gaming SPAC, unprofitable. And of, of course, and, you know, they made all these promises, what they're going to make in 2027. And they had Snoop Dogg as a brand ambassador. <laughs> and I'd invest with Snoop Dogg. I mean, I think he's a very yeah. smart guy. Oh, but, absolutely. But, the, you know, if you if you need a brand ambassador, you're spending all this money on marketing. It raises a lot of questions for me. And, and I mean, so many examples, you know, flying plane companies, they're not going to, you know, projecting that in, you know, they're going to make certain amount of money way far in the future. And investment analysts are like, well, actually they're trading pretty cheap relative to 2030 uh, EBITDA, you know, enterprise value to uh, right. EBITDA. And then, yeah, so I, I'm saying I don't see that now. Yes, NVIDIA is up 180% year over year. I mean, definitely not a cheap stock, but a lot of the companies that you've you know, written about on, on Twitter, and I assume you're invested, either invested in or, you know, you're, you're, you're bullish and you don't own it. Um, well, you saw that I sent I sent you a copy of the uh, AI beneficiaries uh, subsec post. Yeah, so you're long right? all that. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. You asked me earlier about like the way that I invest, and uh, I I'm I'm good at recognizing what I'm not good at, right? And yeah, I, I've never been a like uh, I, sometimes you get lucky, right? But when it comes to like narratives that are affecting like single names, I'm I'm not I'm not very talented at that. But what I what I do take advantage of are with trends are, you know, you can create a basket, basically, you create your own ETF, right? So uh, another example of something that, you know, uh, when the economy started weakening uh, in the summer of last year, I was looking for something to take advantage of the fact that inflation had, you know, kind of made uh, the cost of living higher. And at the same time, uh, maybe there was a recession on the horizon. People were going to earn less. People were going to be out of work. And there's uh, something called the lipstick effect. Are you familiar with it? Because of our talk yesterday, yeah. But okay, there you go. So, so uh, well then, let's see. You know, were you paying attention? What <laughs> you want to you want to explain the lipstick? All right, effect? let's see. So when the cost of living goes up, or people's incomes goes down, whatever. So in real terms, people's lives are getting harder. They're they're uh, actual spending power goes down. People will buy money, uh, spend money on things that are nice and uh, maybe a little bit pricey, but are not actually expensive. Like so, instead of buying a you know a, a new car, it would cost you know twenty thousand dollars, forty, sixty thousand dollars. They're just going to buy like a really nice thing of lipstick, which I, I don't know how much lipstick costs. What you know, fifty dollars? I don't, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> sure, um, okay. <laughs> um, no, but 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 yeah, exactly, right? That uh, 
yeah. couldn't have put it better myself. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, instead that, of buying that's, a house, I'm going to buy a really nice watch. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So that's something that I wanted to take advantage of. Now I have less than no clue about how, you know, like what cosmetics are hot, what cosmetics are not. Right. Yeah, but, you're not like me. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, so I put together a basket of, uh, you know, co- cosmetic stocks. I went in and did, you know, the thing, same thing you do with, uh, any individual stock, but just, you know, on a, on a broader basis, making sure that they were beneficiaries of this trend that I thought was going to happen and, uh, ended up with, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11 names. I went long cosmetics, interperfumes, uh, Giovedan, uh, Alta, Elf Beauty obviously was the, the biggest winner. Um, and, it worked, you know, and as I got into it, started, it became very clear that, you know, Alpha had kind of cracked this. Um, it's not like conspicuous consumption, right? Like, like you don't put a lipstick on and uh, or you're not using a type of makeup and everyone automatically, you know, oh, that's Louis Vuitton, right? There aren't going to be little no LVs on your lips. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, maybe there's a specific color or something like that. But regardless, the that's the thing, right? There's so... They seem to have cracked uh, higher quality and at the same time, you know, sticky brand loyalty and then also at the same time, uh, cheaper price point than their competitors, which uh, is kind of the perfect way to capture this whole lipstick effect trend. You know, the lipstick effect within the lipstick effect. And uh, so th- th- just that's just an example, right? And that's what I'm doing with AI. I've compiled this this basket of, you know, beneficiaries and uh, I think it's up like... Uh, 40 or 50 percent year to date but um that basket is up 40 to 50 percent year to date yeah i mean i have the uh, most of it is from like the past three weeks <laughs> yeah exactly that's what, yeah that's what I'm so saying. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah i feel like uh bubbles in something where there's really nothing to it they last like three weeks a month but i feel like if you have a bubble where there actually is something to it it typically lasts longer than that um, uh, right yeah the market and, is telling you there's something here and yeah, no one is long this stuff. No, you know, you don't have people who are you know, launching AI um, ETFs yet. I mean, actually, I think there is one, and there could, there could be more, but they've exi- they've existed for um, you know a, l- a little bit now. You, it can get so much more frothy than this. That's a, that's my point to the <laughs> audience. And remember that I do know nothing about the actual um, fundamentals. But these stocks, unlike the stocks that were, let's say, in Arc, you know, do trade at a they are profitable. Not I mean, you know, some of them have an okay valuation. Some of them are very, very expensive. Tend to be profitable, with of course many many exceptions. So, how are you feeling about these valuations? Where you know, Nvidia before COVID was had a price to earnings ratio of twenty. Wow. Uh, then it went up to a hundred uh, in twenty you know, late twenty twenty. It sank down to a price to earnings ratio of thirty seven in October for around forty. Now it has a price to earnings ratio of two hundred. And you know that that would be like. Uh, a interest rate you're earning 0.5 percent return every year. You know, so if you, if you, the, the the let's say the treasury bills yield five percent, that their return or their earnings, the price to earnings ratio of, of treasuries is 20. So the price to earnings ratio of Nvidia is 200. So you're you're paying 10 times more. So and it's 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 riskier. So tell tell me walk you through how you own something that's so you know richly well, valued. First off, uh, that's the last 12 months, right? Correct. So that's a big reason, right? Semiconductors are cyclical, uh, and just like any other cyclical name, you know, the when they bottom and the, and they start go, going up again, the on a last twelve months basis, it, it doesn't look that attractive, you know. It just, and but I, you know, I watched the keynote from uh, Jensen Wang, and really. Everything that Nvidia is doing is uh, prime to take advantage of this. Like the the products that they have, the the uh, the newest you know supercomputer, the, the Grace Hopper 200, right? I mean, 256 graphics cards. It's it's they are they've made excellent acquisitions, like with Mellanox. So another point is uh, I ha- I put that whole basket out and I included you know a spreadsheet with it where you you know you can go and you can look at the valuation multiple. And they're not all like that, right? There are there are companies that benefit from this trend that, that are not trading at 200 times price to earnings. 
NVIDIA right now, I don't think that it is at one, you know, 200 times price to earnings for the next 12 months. The reason that NVIDIA trades that high is because it is executing so well. You know, Jensen has been talking about accelerated computing and parallel computing for longer than probably anyone else in this industry. He, I, I'm, I'm relatively certain he'll be the richest person in the world, uh, at some point during the next decade. Uh, and I just, I think that obviously, is it a wise move as an investor to, you know, rush in and buy something that's up 120 or, or whatever, you know, off the lows? Yeah, exactly. Is that wise? No. But is it, it's equally unwise to say this one stock is expensive. So, meh. You know, yeah, I wouldn't. So. <laughs> shorting, shorting it is uh, no, not, not even short. Like, well, this yeah. kind of comes back to what I said before, right? Like, uh, if, if you are if you're an active manager and you and you're long, like, uh, not owning something is kind of akin to you know, if, you're if, long uh, IBM, which you're is, you know. you're kind of yeah, you're kind of expressing the viewpoint that what you own is going to go up more than you know Nvidia, and that might that might be a rational thing to express on Nvidia just because you know the the forward expected returns after uh, such a significant run might not be as significant. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you had, you know, can you imagine, people think of the dot-com bubble and they think of like, you know, 1998, 1999. And again, I'm not saying that that's necessarily what's going to happen here, but it, it, I feel like what we're looking at is a massive trend in technology that the market is starting to acknowledge. And can you imagine from, you know, 94 to 1999 and you're just like can't do it some microsystems is too expensive (laughs) that would suck (laughs) so you can you know like uh, there are there are so many companies involved in this process and uh, it it doesn't make sense to just close yourself off from it you know you you, uh for example i'm trying to think of uh, another good example that is uh let's see like Tesla. Uh, Tesla. Um, no, I'm talking about like a like an AI beneficiary. Oh, oh. Um, well, like, some people uh, say Tesla is an AI beneficiary. Some people are wrong. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah, uh, like electrical component companies, right? Like Bell Foods, Vertive Holdings. You know, makes liquid cooling units are very hot. And they need to be cooled. That's an, the you know the ticker is a VRT. That that's another like it's a, just because there is excitement about it doesn't mean everything surrounding it is expensive. Um, yeah, what, no, but uh, what yeah? What are some companies that trade at valuations that uh, you know a value investor could get their mind around? And I think like you know maybe was it was it um, micro sun um, what was it called? God, what was the company that you? were long that did has done ridiculously well micro super micro yeah yeah still yeah, trading at a six yeah, percent was, was uh, cheap and now it's up 300 percent, and it's still price earnings ratio still 20. cheap 20. Yeah. yeah i mean yeah. Uh, a free cash flow to enterprise value yield of six percent that you know that's uh that's better than the median in the market right uh and the so that's you know that's a perfect example. If you, like if if you want to see like an entire list of of companies like this, that's basically you know what I published on my Substack. I think there, uh, I'll, I'll say that uh, internationally speaking, like uh, Taiwan is a difficult market to buy single name equities, and there's you know paperwork involved. And, but uh, if you are so inclined, I think that the valuation difference between Taiwan and the United States for companies that are essentially uh, identical in terms of potential upside for this uh, theme, it's so significant as to almost be an arbitrage, right? Like like you have companies that uh, are so much cheaper. With the exception that, you know, uh, there's a chance that Taiwan might be taken over by China. So that's trading at a geopolitical premium or uh, geopolitical discount. Yeah, you're earning the geopolitical risk premium. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, and that's certainly something to consider, right? Uh, to close off the last thing that we were talking about, uh, there are plenty of stocks in, that are U.S. listed, right? Here's one that's probably cheap on the next 12 months. Uh, Smart Global Holdings. They, okay. I've, I checked that, yeah. Yeah, there you go. There's one. And so, and then, but, <clears throat> so. So Fabernet too, right? 
Yeah, Fabernet too. Uh, and for example, just uh, if we were going to uh, say, you know, as far as Taiwan is concerned, I mean, there are some Taiwanese companies that are basically that are trading at like one times the last 12 months earnings, what like uh, like uh, Light On. Um, then there's a uh, Acton, you know, which uh, another you know supplier. Uh, I, I believe that they are a direct supplier for, or <clears throat> or Pegatron, right, which uh, makes the um, the servers uh, the ser- server racks. I mean, that's uh, these companies are trading insanely cheap. Right, like, and this is uh, you know potentially a mega trend, you know, and also it uh, it it makes it, like uh, basically just open your computer. You know? <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's like it, yeah. I mean, that was like that was really a very like significant winning strategy in in twenty twenty three. Just like open your computer, and if there's a name in there, buy it. Um, but uh, it's interesting, right? But, you know, uh, since this is a macro-focused show, uh, you know, the, the if this does turn out to be as significant as I personally believe it is, um, it'll be very interesting to see how it affects uh, capital flows and the if you think about the amount of the computing equipment that'll be you know needed to be purchased. It could be, you know, significant. It could it could significantly affect flows into the Taiwanese dollar, right? And and uh, the Taiwanese dollar is a significant uh, funding currency for for carry trades, and so that could be, you know, like an interesting. Uh, there might be a blowout uh, lurking under under the surface in uh, you know Taiwanese dollar. Sorry to interrupt, wanted to let you know about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are going to be there, so if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 20% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, Click the link in the description and use code guidance20. That's guidance20. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. Got it. That is, that's interesting. Um, right. Yeah. And I guess there is the element of, you know, if you have a hardware business, some those margins are sometimes not as good as the software business. So like Intel, you know, they, they make a lot of stuff that's in Microsoft computers, but Microsoft's the one that makes all the money. And so, you know, some of these stocks are trading at a cheaper than, you know, these cloud businesses that, that that might make sense but yeah i mean one times earnings sounds pretty uh extreme tell me what the screen tell me what the losers about this because they're you know companies that were SaaS businesses that traded at a high valuation over the past 10 years and deserved to because they were growing 30 percent a year and were profitable you know even if it's on some adjusted metric or something like that um they i have seen you write about how some companies are actually going to get screwed over some companies will not be beneficiaries they will be you know edged out of the way what kind of companies right. are those well, so have you ever used Fiverr? No, but I know what it is. Do you know what Upwork is? I've heard of it, but I actually don't know what it does. Similar thing? Okay, so yeah, basically. And uh, Fiverr especially, right? Fiverr's entire, like the reason it's called Fiverr is because, you know, uh, I don't, it's not still like this. There are, you know, it's not all, but basically when it first started, it was, you know, pay someone five bucks to, you know, do a menial task for you, right? Like you need to, uh, format this spreadsheet, or, or you know, you need a, a, a quick uh, graphic design job done, or so, you know, uh, you need someone to write a very uh, a letter for you or something. You don't, you don't have time to you know uh, compose uh, personal letters to you know 20 different people. That's what Fiverr is, and uh, coincidentally, that's also what ChatGPT is. <laughs> so I mean, you look at um, Chegg, right? Yep. Chegg, kind of the the first, um, perhaps like the quintessential AI loser. It, it, uh, they basically had a product that enabled students to cheat, I guess. 
yeah, it basically was the business model, right? Yeah, I Correct guess not, if not, I'm wrong. I feel like real true cheating is cheating during a test, like coming in, you're writing something on your arm or something. But right. it, it allowed, yeah, uh, it would tell you what happened in Huckleberry Finn, so you didn't have to actually read Huckleberry Finn. Right, exactly. Right, so and and ChatGPT is is very good at that, and this and the stock tanked in February, March, big time. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know that much Python, but I asked, uh, you know, uh, GPT four to do it for me, and it did it, and it, it works. You know, I, I was paying someone to do that on Upwork before, mm. and uh, so that seems like a pretty significant uh, loser. Just for example, like something like LegalZoom. Right. I'm sure that, uh, you know, lawyers are going to uh, fight back against, you know, I saw there was something where uh, uh, an attorney wrote a brief. Did you see that? Wrote a no, brief using ChatGPT so and got caught. Does LegalZoom use uh, AI? No, I don't think so. So that's the, the, the thing, right? Like uh, uh, if I want to set up an LLC, it basically I can do it myself, right? I can file, you know. I can file for an employer tax identification number with the federal government, and then I file with my state uh, to, you know, get articles of incorporation, and uh, that's that. And LegalZoom will do that process for you, but it's a very broke, you know, straightforward process. And ChatGPT could fill out those forms for you, tell you where to send them, tell you what, you know, where to submit them, and uh, yeah. I think that that's, you know, but again, very speculative with this kind of stuff. I don't. Uh, this isn't, you know, I, I have better uh, things to be short, I think, than like, uh, unless the company is like significantly, um, like not in great shape otherwise too. This has been uh, a lot over my head. Thanks for, for, for sharing with me. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a finance guy. Let's, let's stick to finance. So you tell me, Satrini, that you, you traffic in a lot of things, you know, rates, commodities, stocks, you know, volatility, maybe. Let's see. I'm going to throw a few things out there. What do you, uh, what do you think about the ten-year treasury? Where do you think that's going, and why? Uh, I think, I think that it's the rich problem. Yeah, rich, rich for sure. There needs to, uh, I think yields should uh, uh, probably go higher. I would not be surprised to see yields uh, retest their highs. About four percent on the ten on the ten-year. Got it. Okay. Let's um, continue yeah. the lightning round. What do you think about <laughs> bank stocks? Uh, you know, I mean, you can throw out individual names. I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of the names or the XLF, which is like, you know, 12% for Strathaway, Bank of America, blah, 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 or KBWB, which is an ETF of the regional banks. I think that, pro okay, so bank stocks, basically, regional bank stocks, right, are uh, basically, I would probably stay away if you were going to play it. Uh, I think that I do think that KRE might have put in, you know, a, a decent bottom uh, back there around, you know, 30, <clears throat> 35. I think the better way to play it was um, with the preferred stock. You know, obviously there was a ton of upside on some of these names, but, you know, some of them are going to see uh, their you know, net interest margins compress and it's uh, going to be a very tough environment. It looks like the yield curve's going to stay inverted for a, a little while longer, mm -hmm. uh, especially after the you know job sprint today. And it just seems basically that it, I would like to be. I picked up Comerica straight bonds. Uh, I think they're uh, straight 20, bonds. What did you yeah, and and uh, for for like a 11% yield to maturity. That you know a little while ago, I also picked up a a couple different uh, preferreds. You know, I got um. First Horizon. Back when the deal broke, I picked up, you know, First Horizon uh, Series A for, uh, um, or sorry, let me just, yes, First Horizon Series B, sorry, for uh, it's like $16.90. And, uh, $16 it, and par is 25 so that's, I'm not right. good at math, but that's, yeah. Yeah, and and you know the the, the thing is, you know, they are um, they're perpetual, right, and non-cumulative. Right. So if the bank get in, gets into trouble, they can suspend the dividend, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, and these but, trees are are quite uh, complex, so people should yeah. right. And, and but at, but at the same time, you know, it was super overblown, base, you know. So so yeah. uh, that's what that's the way I played it uh, with the preferreds. I think that if you, if you want to get involved in like regional bank stocks, uh, do your research. You know, like make sure that. Uh, 
there are probably some good deals out there, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, they they could they could go lower. So I think I would probably I, I was long KRE. I re, I sold it right around you know middle of this week. I I think that it might have a little more upside left, but I think if you're going to play in regional bank stocks, you have to make the commitment to go after a name that you are willing to learn about. I, uh, I think like a Bank of Hawaii might be a good place to start. Oh, I've, I've looked into Bank of Hawaii. Yeah, I, I, you know, uh, there's a... I don't own it, but... Banking is a lot different in Hawaii than it is in, in like the continental United States in the sense that uh, there's a lot less competition. And if these banks were to get into trouble, it would uh, be very likely for... Uh, someone to buy them out just because it's been a very difficult market for the larger, uh, you know, big banks to break into. So that might, that might offer you a margin of safety. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code GUIDANCE10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Got it. Okay. Let's keep going. I like this. All right. <laughs> Price of gold. Price of gold down. Down. Why? Uh, because it's a real rate proxy. Real and rate so real rates will go higher? Mm-hmm. Why? Thus, inflation-adjusted rates probably um, based on inflation break-even, so not actual inflation, but f- future inflation expectations. So I have a bullish bias on the dollar. And Why? Uh, I think that for, I think that the narrative got a little overblown in the whole de-dollarization, the reserve currency, the dollar hatred. Um, I, I read something, I think it was from Exante, Exante Data. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a, a great, great history about like dollar hatred through the years, right? And yep. uh, I I don't see a scenario where the renminbi is like the world's reserve currency. I think that basically, you know, dollar hatred is cyclical. I also think that uh, for a while, like Christine Lagarde fooled me. Right. Like, it was like, like she came out and, uh, you know, I was like hyped, right? Cause I, the, I was long the euro at the time. And I'm like, Christine Lagarde just had her dragon moment. And like, she is going to whip inflation now. And uh, like, this is the ECB is getting sh- shit done. Can I, can I say that? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I, okay. okay, <laughs> okay so now you mentioned Christine Lagarde. Where do you think, uh, the, how, how high do you think the ECB hikes its rates to? <laughs> And I guess what the terminal rate that's now being priced in is uh, what, like 3.8%. And what is the, let me see what the spot rate is. ECB deposit rate now. Um, 3.25% now around, around there. And again, it's, there's a deposit rate. There's a lot of main refinancing, a lot of different things as, as you know. But so is that 3.25%? Market thinks they'll get to 3.8%. So two more hikes. Do you think they do more, less, or, or the market's right? I think they do whatever the Fed does and then one more. And so the, I think okay, so the Fed's so that okay, and that's what's being priced in, right? Because now, because mm-hmm. so, do you think the Fed does another one? Do you do you believe this whole skip the, that okay, that we're gonna skip in June, and then we'll hike in July, or is that just a little narrative? Yeah, no, I don't think so. The, the Fed understands uh, that once they stop, the I I really okay for like. There is something to be said for like like when you're when you're positioning yourself, right? It's important to not position on what you think the Fed should do, but position yourself on what the Fed what you think the Fed will do, right? Which uh, are very different things sometimes, you know, most of the time. So in terms of the next FOMC, I I really don't see a reason why. They, I think they know once they stop, 
like that is it would be very difficult in terms of, you know, the Fed doesn't want to do something that the market isn't already pricing it. And once they stop, it's going to be very difficult to get, you know, uh, the short-term interest rate futures to price in them starting hiking. Again. So it, right now it's pricing in six, 70% chance of no hike in June and in two weeks. And so it, if that's true and they don't hike, then they won't hike in July for the reasons you said. And therefore, if the Fed does zero hikes from here, that means the ECB will do one rate hike. So that means the ECB will get to 3.5%. Right. Like the ECB might, you know, go off on its own. And we, we might see like multiple meetings where the ECB hikes and the Fed doesn't. And then uh, like after Credit Suisse, they, they had a little bit of a tone change. And I don't think that's the case anymore. But what I'm really interested to find out, you know, if you look at like uh, the Bank of England and uh, you kind of, if you look at like where, Break-evens uh, for you know linkers are trading like real rates in, in and forwards. Uh, real rates are basically like like, uh, like I think one or two years forward they're at like thirty basis points, and then like five years forward they're at zero or so. You know I, I have, have to look again. Ten percent, twelve. Right. So so the I'm talking about forwards, right? Right. I, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and so that's that's what's really interesting to me because like. I, but first off, I think that Bailey is like not the most competent central banker. <laughs> like, uh, if, if like, if there was like a central banking competition to save my life, I would not want Bailey to be like representing me. Uh, but I think that basically yields on like a 10 year guilt are nearing where they were when they had the pension crisis. And, uh, thing about that is like when you get to a level where like something broke before uh you know it's like on the old maps right like here be dragons <laughs> it's like we don't know what happens if we go above that and it, it's it's just they are in such a bad situation it'll be very interesting to see if like if the ecb pauses and the fed pauses it's on one hand, it's very difficult for me to see the Bank of England like continuing to hike. On the other, like I don't want to see what happens to, <laughs> to the you know Great Britain's inflation rate when uh, if they pause just to follow the other global central banks. That that'll be uh, tricky. Got it. That, thanks. Okay, so final question: What about the stocks? We're at what, forty above forty two hundred now for the S and P five hundred. Bullish, bearish, neutral. What do you think? I. Currently, I'm bullish. I, I think that uh, I don't think that we could uh, a pull. You know, pullback would probably be natural. I think like uh, I think we might see maybe a pullback back to like uh, forty one fifty or so. But I, I don't. It's nothing that would stop me. From you're bullish. Yeah, you're bullish. We don't, we don't, bullish. You don't have to top a pull. Yeah, you're bullish. That's, that's cool. Like I've been bullish for like since no you know, October, November, but jealous, it's, like, it's just, it's just <laughs> difficult. Right. Because like, like I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't have blinders on. I see that like, it's a very confusing macro environment, but at the same time in the past, the times when I have been successful uh, making decisions in stocks off macro, uh, macro was not confusing at all. It was like, very, you know, very, very straightforward in, in the sense where, I could pull up, you know, uh, like like four of the most common macro indicators, like uh, you know, non-farm payrolls, uh, mm. GDP, inflation rate, uh, the initial jobless plan. Just, you know, I, I don't have to like delve deeper. I just uh, like the macro decision of like the Fed is going to raise rates, and you know, back in like the late 2021, the Fed is is uh, there are like uh, hoofbeats of quantitative tightening. The Fed says they might have to raise rates. Inflation is ramping. It's been, you know, above 5% for the past two months. That's straightforward, you sure know? Bonds, yeah. and, and that, yeah, short bonds, sell the sell the, the risk assets, sell the equities. I have not had great success in the past where it's like, oh, the macro is too confusing. I better, like, get out of, you know, the assets because, it, like, everyone else is going to, you know, uh, obviously some people know what's going on, but, like, on average, everyone else would be confused too. And, and, it right. So how like, have you been so successful yeah. 
if the macro has been so confusing? Have, has your alpha not been based on macro? It's been based on other stuff? Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, a lot of it is just, you know, fading sentiment, right? Like the reason that I got long in October didn't have anything to do with it. What it had to do with was, uh, first off, I, 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 in the beginning, I was right for the wrong reason, right? I saw the Bank of England crack in terms of, uh, you know, with the pension crisis at, in the end of September. And that was kind of like, okay, like maybe we're getting into an area where they have to uh, start, you know, uh, easing it back that you know and also it just uh everyone was like certain we were going to have a, a recession cyclicals were actually absolutely smashed so it just seemed like okay even if we do have a recession if i get long here it seems like unless the recession's severe i'm going to make money and like when it comes to trading uh, you know like a, like macro thesis is, is good and overarching regime knowing what that is it's great but at the end of the day, it's all risk reward, right? It's how much money can you lose versus, you know, how much can you make? And the, that's, uh, if you don't understand that, then you're never going to make money trading just because, uh, if you just have your thesis and you're a hundred percent convinced you're right, uh, then, you know, uh, and maybe you even are right, <laughs> but you, the, the market will not cooperate with that. So the reason that I've been successful is just risk reward. It has nothing to do with, you know, whether my macro theses have been right or not. I had some decent calls, you know, like, like, uh, like I said, you know, selling growth and, and risk assets in, uh, you know, late 2021. And, uh, I did, you know, catch like the summer bear market rally, but mostly again, just risk reward. What about price of oil now? What about, about 70 bucks and then oil stocks? But oil first. I mean, uh, I recently got long oil, uh, literally like 36 hours ago. <laughs> it was like like a late night, like you know, uh, I I uh, I got I got in like a good you know got in about 60. I tweeted at like one in the morning. I was like, I'm gonna go long oil a little bit. It just seemed like uh, I was speaking to like oil traders, and I was like, you know, what is going on? Like, are, are is like the energy complex convinced we're having a recession because uh, you know i'm not really seeing that and you know it's like oil kept falling off a cliff meanwhile like you know uh it just didn't line up with the whole cross asset picture and uh, so they were like i don't know and you know uh it just seemed like a very uh washed out sentiment type thing so i'm in it for a short-term trade it seems like you know as uh OPEC is apparently intent on uh, making speculators ouchy. I don't necessarily know what that means. <laughs> like, uh, I guess uh, I'll, I'll be on the side of uh, OPEC for now. Um, so I'm long oil for now. All right, final one, Satrini, I promise. What do you think about the Bank of Japan, the yen, and uh, yeah, rates on JGBs, Japanese government bonds? Well, so... Uh, in December, you know, uh, back when Kuroda was here, you know, uh, I miss him. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it was like very uh, straightforward in, in terms of uh, what everyone thought was going to happen. And then, uh, you know, I've been pretty bullish on Japanese equities just in terms of the differential between, you know, the rest of the world is tightening, Japan is keeping easy. And it seems like Ueda came into his position. And what I was expecting was uh, not necessarily a quick policy normalization, but I was expecting a little bit more of a change, right? That he would, you know, do like SFSO or, you know, just anything to, you know, get away from yield curve control. But I think what uh, I didn't realize necessarily, uh, or what I didn't attribute enough weight to was that, you know, uh, inflation in Japan has been something that they have been trying to achieve for, you know, multiple decades. And, uh, it's very difficult to be like, if you're UAD, you want to just come in and be like, okay, we're normalizing policy now. Like, it's cool. We got inflation back, you know, positive for the first time in forever, but let's see what happens when we, you know, <laughs> It's right. Nobody wants to be that guy that like ruins, you know, like three decades of work. So he seems to be very measured about it. I can't blame him for that. You know, it seems like the Japanese economy is finally picking up. And, you know, uh, uh, that's kind of, you know, I guess Kuroda's legacy along with a bunch of other stuff. But um, I think that basically the, the way that yield curve control is going to be unwound, it's not going to be how the market expects. 
uh, just like with anything else in the Bank of Japan, I think it'll it'll take a lot longer. Uh, I was I I was short JGBs back in September when they did the first yield curve control adjustment, and uh, now it's looking like uh, probably the Japanese bond yields are going to stay right where they are. And in terms of the yen, uh, I think that right now the weekend is is beneficial to Japan, and uh, I. I don't, I, you know, I think that if it got crazy again and it, you know, got totally disconnected from U.S. rates and, you know, started spiking like how, how it was, you know, last summer, then they, you know, they would do FX intervention again. But I do think there's still some downside left on the yen as the, you know, the market uh, fully realizes that the differential, uh, the, you know, the, the Bank of Japan is staying dovish for now. Got it. And you're bullish on, you're still bullish on Japanese equities? I am, yeah. Got it. Got it. Cool. Well, thank you so much to Trini uh, for joining us. People can find you on Twitter at Citrini7 and your Substack, uh, Citrini.substack.com. Thanks so much for joining us and thanks everyone for watching. Thanks a lot, Jack. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.